You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We have new details tonight in an attack on a young female student in Port Coquitlam that's blown up on social media. The teen allegedly harassed and then attacked by a group of boys, one of whom has since been arrested. Today, both mother and daughter sat down with our Grace Key to talk about what happened and the impact that both the incident and how it's been handled is having on them. And I was like, what did you just call me? And he was laughing and he's like, oh, I called you this. And so I shoved, shoved him out of my face because he was really close to me. For the first time, we're hearing from the young teen who had a confrontation with four boys at Citadel Middle School in Port Coquitlam on January 10th. We're not showing her or her mother's face to protect her identity as a minor. The girl blacked out and was sent to hospital with gashes to her face. My sisters were all like looking at me and they looked scared too, you know, so we were all scared. A police officer told them the boys claimed they made lewd comments to her only after she pulled down her pants and showed them her bra. The young girl was horrified and denies it ever happened. I cried a lot. I was just really hurt that people were lying and blaming the situation on me. The confrontation unfolded after school as the girl was picking up her two younger sisters near the front of the building, adding other students and parents were present at the time. Go to the school and, and get the other kids that were there. Get people that were not a part of this group that were there. You know, ask them what happened. Has anyone come forward and said that it happened? No. I was really sad. Like, I felt like I didn't exist because there were so many parents and they looked at me and they, they saw what happened, but... None of them even cared. They just walked past us like nothing even happened at all. The mother has been critical of how police have handled this investigation and the lack of sensitivity towards interviewing her daughter. She wanted to just end it all. And she kept saying that over and over again. Like, I'm, I can't. I don't want to be here. I don't want to hear this. I, I, I just, I, wanna, I want it to all go away. I don't want to be here. Like, you know, I wish I was dead. She really felt like she was getting blamed for this. And her mental health was so bad, like she really felt like she did something wrong. A 13-year-old boy was arrested and is accused of assault, causing bodily harm and uttering threats. Grace Key, Global News. And now to a rapidly unfolding story, concerns about the coronavirus. Chinese state media is reporting today that the city of Wuhan is shutting down outbound flights and trains as the virus spreads more, more widely. That means effectively a city of about 11 million is under quarantine. Our Sarah McDonald joins us with the latest on the spread of this respiratory illness and what the public needs to know tonight. Sarah. Well, Sophie, this virus is spreading rapidly and just as concerning to health officials from human to human. At least 17 people have now died from coronavirus, with hundreds of cases confirmed across the globe tonight. The coronavirus has now spread from Wuhan City in mainland China to at least 11 countries, including the United States, with a confirmed case just south of the border of us in Washington State. A Seattle man in his 30s contracted the virus. During a recent visit to China, he is said to be recovering in quarantine in hospital. BC health officials tell Global News there have been no confirmed cases in Canada yet, but passengers arriving at airports across the country, including Vancouver, are now being screened for symptoms of coronavirus. The situation is, uh, is pretty serious, yeah. It's like a hygienic thing, and when there's something like this going around, it seems like a good idea. How efficient is human-to-human -human transmission? Because really that's going to be one of the driving uh, forces behind whether or not this turns into something a little bit larger or whether or not we're able to get this under control.
All right, Sarah, this is all coming as the World Health Organization uh, met today and held off on declaring a public health emergency. But how quickly might they change that? That's right. It hasn't been declared a global public health emergency at this point. But that could change as World Health Organization officials are meeting once again to discuss coronavirus tomorrow, just as hundreds of millions of people will be traveling to China to celebrate Lunar New Year this weekend. Sophie. All right. Sarah McDonald reporting live. Sarah, thank you. All right, a little background now. Coronaviruses are a large family of viruses, but the illness we're seeing from Wuhan is a novel variety not seen before. And while it's reached six countries, Linda Aylesworth explains why it's not a pandemic yet and what experts are doing to hopefully keep it that way. The headlines are, in some cases, shocking. But are they accurate? Is the latest coronavirus deadly? That's exaggeration, and it's not helpful. Um, And it's just not true. Clearly, that does not mean this new virus should or is being taken lightly. The fact that it successfully spread from bats to wildlife sold in a Chinese market to humans, and now from humans to humans makes it a concern. Coming from animal to human, you know, it's hard to say, you know, how severe it's going to be in, in humans uh, because, you know, it's, it's something that our immune systems haven't been exposed to before. And the fact we've only known about it for a few weeks means there's much to learn. Thus the precautions to stop the spread. Coronaviruses are highly mutable, highly changeable, and we don't want this virus to adapt, acquaint itself, and become familiar established within the human population. Up to now, there have been six kinds of human coronaviruses. Four are common and cause simple cold symptoms. But two, SARS and MERS, could cause serious respiratory infections. In 2002, SARS spread from China to 37 countries and caused over 700 deaths. So far, this newest coronavirus has claimed 17 lives. I think, you know, um, people don't have to be too worried. It's small numbers right now, and there are preventative measures, so a person's individual risk in Canada is pretty low. This is not a pandemic. It's not on that scale. We want to prevent it from uh, becoming on that scale. We are, each of us, uh, committed to uh, that attempt. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Now to a scary scene at a Langley Mall where witnesses saw a man pull out what appeared to be a long gun. These images caught on video at Willowbrook Mall Tuesday afternoon. RCMP confirmed they received a call of an assault involving a young person who was struck by the weapon. Their injuries are minor. The suspect took off, but it's not known if that gun was real or fake. RCMP believe the victim and suspect knew one another. They are asking witnesses to come forward. A series of pedestrian accidents is a warning for walkers and drivers to be extra vigilant. One victim, a 55-year-old man, was hit and killed near 24th Avenue and 188th Street around 7 o'clock this morning. The driver remained on the scene and is cooperating with police. Anyone with other information or dash cam footage is asked to contact the Surrey RCMP. And a 72-year-old man was struck in Richmond last Tuesday. He has now died. The pedestrian was crossing near Cooney and Ackroyd Roads around 10.30 in the morning when he was hit by a pickup truck. That driver also remained at scene. RCMP are still seeking dash cam video from anyone who may have been driving in the area at the time. 
Safety concerns involving a Port Moody intersection are being highlighted in a new petition pushing for change. For years, local businesses have been calling for a crosswalk for their clientele, many of them children. The last straw came earlier this week when one of their students was struck. Tonight, as Nadia Stewart reports, a promise from the mayor. For more than two years, business owners on Clark Street near Elgin have been warning staff and counselors at Port Moody City Hall. Milad Barami says his greatest fear was having one of his Taekwondo students hit by a car on the busy street outside the facility. One day this will happen and it's going to be on, it's going to be on you. But that's exactly what happened on Monday. A seven-year-old boy was the victim. It happened as he hopped out of his family's vehicle and tried to dart across the street to the other side. Barami says had the city put up a crosswalk when they first called for one in 2018, this never would have happened. If you go down to Murray Street where the breweries are, there are probably three breweries that have two crosswalks readily available to them. Up here, there isn't a crosswalk for a couple of blocks in either direction. Please come and stand here and tell me that you're going to walk seven minutes that way or seven minutes that way. Like, it's just not reasonable. Lisa Beecroft's bakery and cafe is right next door to Milan School. She blames the bureaucracy at City Hall for the inaction. We get the long, long-winded explanation that it's budget, and it's just, it's ridiculous that, that you're going to claim budget over safety of your citizens is crazy. In March 2018, a staff report recommended crosswalk planning wait while more technical work was done around the design of Clark Street. Port Moody Mayor Rob Bagramoff asked then the process be accelerated. Since then, nothing has happened. He says council failed to make it a priority. I'm pushing forward uh, with an emergency memo to make sure that this gets built, uh, designed and constructed in 2020. It will still take a vote from council to make the mayor's promise a reality. Indigenous youth activists blocked the entrance to the office of the Ministry of Energy, Mines and Petroleum Resources today. The protesters are supporting hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en First Nation who are opposing coastal gas link in defiance of a federal court ruling. Global's Brad McLeod has more on what they want and their promise going forward. An overnight protest ends in multiple arrests. And put in cold, gross jail cells. And 19-year-old Kalila Rampanen, one of them. This video shot by one of the protesters shows 12 people being arrested by Victoria Police early Wednesday after this group occupied the energy ministry for over 15 hours. What they wanted? That the ministers relayed a message to John Horgan to set up a... Um, uh, time to meet with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. It's the latest act from environmentalists and Indigenous youth who want more consultation on the LNG pipeline being built through Wet'suwet'en land. Just two days ago, activists blocked the Swartz Bay ferry terminal, backing up traffic for kilometres. As for the dozen detained from the sit-in, once released, they joined yet another protest downtown. A few hours ago, what reconciliation looked like was arresting and detaining Indigenous youth. Popular singer Takea Blaney taking part in the movement and sharing the video with thousands of her fans online. Premier Horgan did send Scott Fraser, Minister of Indigenous Relations, to meet with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs Wednesday. But it's not good enough for the group. It's not what we are asking for. It's his people and he, he doesn't take the time to go 
himself. In a statement from the Energy Ministry, we respect the right of people to engage in peaceful protest, going on to say they have engaged with Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs in 2019, but note those talks were not related to any specific project. Protesters claim police blocked food and medication from getting to those inside the office overnight, a claim police dispute. In a statement, Vic PD detailed the arrests were made over four hours. Police claim officers were pushed and shoved as the demonstrators were put in the cars one by one. Until changes are made and our requests are met, then we won't stop. No charges were laid against the protesters. Brad McLeod, Global News, Victoria. Well, Premier John Horgan announced a minor cabinet shuffle today. Two ministers have switched places and another role has been filled. Keith Baldry joins us live from Victoria with more. Not a lot of movement today, Keith. Did we think this was going to be a little more substantial? Yeah, a little more at least. Certainly based on John Horgan's comments to me in our year-end interview uh, where he said uh, he wanted to uh, basically refresh and renew his government, he would be making some changes in cabinet. But as you mentioned, two ministers swat jobs. Bruce Ralston goes to energy. Michelle Mongal goes from energy to jobs and economic development. One new face, only no demotions. We thought Doug Donaldson was in trouble in force, but that's not the case. Uh, so no demotions. One promotion from the backbench. Someone most people probably haven't heard of. A new MLA, first elected in 2017. And She's the new Citizen Services Minister. And in case you're wondering what a Citizen Services Minister does, here's John Horgan's description of her job requirements. Minister Kang will continue to work to modernize government procurements and to make sure that local companies can do business with government more effectively and in a more seamless way. So one thing this uh, shuffle should do, and again, I hesitate to call it a shuffle, but Sophie, this should deaden all that speculation out there from some quarters that we're going to have an early election call, a snap election this year instead of the uh, legislative uh, calendar in fall of 2021. This is not a pre-election shuffle by any means. There will be a, a substantial shuffle before the next election, but that's probably at least a year away in terms of big moves at the cabinet table. Little trading places. All right. Thanks for that, <laughs> Keith. All right, we'll jump right into some breaking news going on just south of the border right now. Police are investigating a mass shooting in downtown Seattle. It happened shortly after 5 today at 4th Avenue and Pine Street in the heart of the city's downtown. Seattle police confirm there are multiple victims and that the suspect fled the scene. The search is now underway. We will bring you more details on this breaking story as they come into our newsroom. Right now, day three of the extradition hearing for Meng Wanzhou saw Crown lawyers laying out their arguments. And while defense is saying the charges against the Huawei executive might be criminal in the U.S., they aren't here in Canada. However, Crown is arguing fraud is fraud. Here's Aaron MacArthur. Crown prosecutors told Justice Holmes today that its case was not at all complicated. Lying to secure a bank loan is fraud. Meng Wanzhou is accused of making misrepresentations to HSBC in August of 2013, downplaying the link between Huawei and Skycom, a proxy company doing business in Iran. Defense has said there can't possibly be fraud in this case because HSBC's money was never put at risk. Today, Crown took a different tack arguing the risk was only to the bank's reputation. A long list of transactions and documents were given as evidence suggesting HSBC was worried about Huawei's dealings in Iran. Crown alleges the hundreds of millions of dollars were only granted in loans 
after Meng's assurances of the separation between Huawei and Skycom. It's an argument lawyers who were watching the proceedings didn't think held up all that well. Crown seems to be grasping uh, at meeting its burden to show Ms. Meng did something wrong that placed this bank at a risk of economic deprivation, that same bank that's under deferred prosecution agreements for dealing with countries like uh, Myanmar, Sudan, and others. The double criminality phase of the extradition hearing will wrap up Thursday morning. Still plenty of more court dates to come, a civil trial in the spring, and then the conclusion of the extradition hearing could happen sometime in the fall. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Right now, though, a Kelowna man has lost his wrongful dismissal case against Mission Hill Winery after he was fired for spilling more than 5,000 liters of wine down a drain. Global's Jules Knox has more on how it happened and why the judge ruled the firing was justified. The top cellar man at West Kelowna's Mission Hill Winery dumped thousands of liters of wine down the drain not once, but twice. That according to a recent arbitration ruling between the winery and its union. Documents show that back in 2017, Brent Crozier dumped 11,000 litres of wine down the drain, but kept his job. Then, in November 2018, when Crozier lost nearly 6,000 litres of wine, worth an estimated $160,000, he got fired. Crozier grieved his dismissal, and the arbitration decision was just recently released. According to the ruling, Crozier failed to close a crucial valve, resulting in the sizable Sauvignon spillage. In his defense, Crozier called the busy season from mid-August to the end of November the crush and said he racked up 257 hours of overtime. The union also pointing to costly errors made by other Mission Hill employees, like one staff member who made three blending mistakes in eight months, the last one costing the company at least $120,000, but only received a three-day suspension. However, in his ruling, arbitrator Nicholas Glass noted that Crozier's mistakes were the only two times in Mission Hill's history that wine had been lost down an open drain. He also wrote that Crozier, quote, forgot what his task was for at least a critical half hour, and he had no other pressing duties during that time. In the end, Crozier's grievance was dismissed, the arbitrator saying that the firing was not excessive given the circumstances. Jules Knox, Global News, West Kelowna. Well, it might be a good time to stock up on greeting cards. Over the next month or so, all 254 Carlton cards and papyrus stores are closing their doors, including 76 locations across Canada. Around 1,400 people will likely be out of a job. Parent company Shurman Retail Group says the company was unable to realign the stores to fit today's shopping environment. Therefore, the closures they say are necessary. The company says their cards will continue to be available online. Caught on video and under investigation by police on Vancouver Island, this shocking close call. It happened Tuesday morning on Highway 14 near Langford. A vehicle passes on the right and then loses control. Swerves into oncoming traffic and then narrowly misses several vehicles. After a full 360, it then crashes into the shoulder. West Shore RCMP are investigating possible infractions, including speeding and driving without due care and attention. Wow. 
A West Vancouver councillor is on a mission tonight to get rid of obviously racist regulations governing land titles that you might not even believe are still on the books. Catherine Urquhart tells us why he wants the archaic law scrubbed, even though it's no longer enforced. Multi-million dollar luxury homes line the streets of West Vancouver's British properties. What many people don't realize is most of these homes come with racist land title covenants, barring people of African and Asian descent. It's beyond the pale. I can't believe that West Vancouver would have that. It was the 1930s when British Pacific Properties started developing the area. Construction of the Lionsgate Bridge prompted further growth. The area was promoted to Caucasian buyers, and a standard covenant read, no person of the African or Asiatic race or African or Asiatic descent, except servants of the occupier of the premises in residence, shall reside or be allowed to remain on the premises. I grew up here, and I certainly always knew that in the back of my head, sort of dangling over, the, over, over my head, that, uh, you know, people like me, at a certain time in history, were not allowed to live here. Councillor Marcus Wong admits those covenants are no longer enforceable, but he's presenting a motion to council asking the district to work toward having the offensive language removed. The motion calls for city staff to work with the LTSA, the Land Titles and Survey Authority, to come up with an efficient and effective process to address them. We're looking at doing it for a bulk uh, number of properties. In response to the motion, British Pacific Properties told Global News it fully supports Councillor Wong's motion and any other steps taken by the District of West Vancouver to remove discriminatory language from the titles of properties. West Vancouver isn't the only area with racist covenants. Similar language is on thousands of homes in B.C. Wong presents his motion Monday and hopes other municipalities will consider doing the same. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. All right, more now on that breaking news out of Seattle. Police are investigating a mass shooting tonight, and we can now confirm at least one person has died. It happened shortly after 5 o'clock this evening at 4th Avenue and Pine Street. That's in the heart of the city's downtown area. Seattle police confirm again one person dead, five others injured. The extent of the injuries, though, is not known. The suspect took off and an active search is now underway. And we will keep you updated on that story as more details come in. Now, opening arguments are finally underway in the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. After months of investigation and hours of partisan debate, the arguments now focus on the core issue, whether the president abused his power and obstructed Congress. Help them remember. With a prayer for wisdom and a call to order. Would you please be seated? House impeachment Chief managers Justice begin their Senators, opening arguments, Council for the first time laying out their entire case against President Trump from start to finish. The Constitution demands the removal of Donald J. Trump from his office as President of the United States. House Democrats have 24 hours over three days to wage an uphill battle. They're aiming to convince a small number of moderates in the Republican-controlled Senate that President Trump obstructed Congress and abused his power by urging Ukraine to announce investigations of his political rivals. The president has repeatedly said his July 25th call with Ukraine's leader was perfect. In a perfect call, the president would not solicit foreign interference 
in the 2020 election. Democrats equipped with videos. Rudy Giuliani was a hand grenade that was going to blow everyone up. And quotes from the House investigation to back up their case. Senators, silent jurors inside the chamber, but still politicians outside those doors. Republicans defending President Trump. They're on a crusade to destroy this man. The president today casting doubt on whether he'd let members of his administration testify, but saying he'd like to be there himself. No, I'd sort of love sit right in the front row and stare at their corrupt faces. While Democrats promise to fight for a full process with new evidence. There will be continued pressure on many Republican members to ask for witnesses and documents. With the real battle now underway, Democrats looking beyond the senators sitting in judgment, hoping to make their case directly to the American public. Alice Barr, NBC News, Washington. A big surprise tonight in the race for the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party. I have really struggled with the decision to return to political life. I loved my 13 years in public service as an MP, a minister, and especially as leader of this great party. But right now... However, she just confirmed she is not coming back. Ronna Ambrose, a former interim leader of the party, announcing on Facebook she will not be running for the job. Ambrose says while she's humbled to be considered, she's now focused on making a difference through the private sector. She was considered to be virtually unbeatable if she had run. Now that she's bowed out, former Tory cabinet minister Peter McKay is considered to be the current front runner. Opening statements today in the sexual assault and rape trial of former movie mogul Harvey Weinstein with attorneys painting starkly different pictures. Prosecutor Megan Hast calling Weinstein a sexual predator and including graphic descriptions of the alleged crimes. She accused Weinstein of using his immense influence in the film industry to keep his alleged victims silent. The defense contending the relationships Weinstein had were consensual saying they will show what they call loving emails the accusers continue to send Weinstein after the alleged assaults. Weinstein has pleaded not guilty. Another founding member of the British troupe that revolutionized modern comedy has died. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Now go away. Monty Python co-founder Terry Jones has passed away at the age of 77 after battling a rare form of dementia. Along with playing iconic characters, Jones directed the Python movies Holy Grail, Life of Brian and The Meaning of Life. His co-stars are remembering him as a renaissance comedian. And in keeping with Python-esque humor, John Cleese, referring to the 1989 death of Graham Chapman, says, Two down, four to go. You know, in other words like that, I think that's doing a real service to the community. I mean, oh. Well, a search of the global news archives shows Terry Jones and the rest of the Pythons making an appearance on BCTV News, as we were known back then, back in 1973, before an appearance at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre. After some man-on-the-street improv, an interview with weatherman Norm Groman deteriorated into bedlam. You can see the entire five-minute video on our website, globalnews.ca slash bc. In Health Matters tonight, a health care advocacy group is blasting the NDP government for its decision to limit funding for the only drug that helps some young people with a debilitating disease. The group Cure SMA 
says BC has approved funding for the drug Spinraza to treat spinal muscular atrophy, a progressive condition that slowly robs patients of strength and the ability to move and breathe. But unlike many other provinces, BC will only fund the drug up to age 12, cutting out many teenaged patients. So as a mother, I now have to make a difficult decision. I have to decide, do I leave BC with my daughter who is affected by SMA so she has a chance for life? Do we leave our home, community, family, support network, her university, our jobs, everything we've ever known? We reached out to Health Minister Adrian Dix for his response, but we have so far received no reply. An unusual public advisory for Floridians, those dead iguanas that are being seen all around town, aren't really dead. We'll have the details right after the forecast. <laughs> Okay. Happens, happens every time it gets cold down there. <laughs> All right. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with a look at a very bleak oh, forecast. Forecast <laughs> and past mm -hmm. and just the winter. I've been feeling it, and I know a lot of people have. It's been relentless. The rain, the snow, has been nonstop. So let's have a look at things and give you reason for feeling the way that you do. This is our December. We didn't have any snowfall, but we had relentless rain. Only five days without precipitation. Our uh, average was, uh, so we were above average by a good oh, 15 millimeters of rain. So certainly significant rain. But then three of those days were total soakers. Do you remember the last day of December? 20 at the airport, 21, but some areas saw 50. 60, 70 millimeters of rain. It was a total soaker. And then January just kept on going. We've only had one day without precipitation. Three of the days were heavy rainfall, in fact. And then we had from the January 10th to January 16th, the snowfall. So it was never ending. And now we have a rainfall warning. We saw rain throughout the day today, and it's only going to get heavier overnight. So these are the totals we're expecting by the morning hours. For Metro Vancouver, it's really just northern regions, although southern regions will see the rain. But the warning is for northern regions up to 80 millimeters. So, as I mentioned, it is going to get heavier overnight as this pulse pushes in. Look at the yellows and the oranges there. So, your commute to work will be affected, although the rain will begin to ease off around 8 or 9 tomorrow morning. But even during the day tomorrow, we'll see rain, but it will just be more on and off. And that will continue on Friday also. For those of you inland, snowfall, but that freezing level is going to climb. So, we are concerned about a lot of snow melt in the local mountains and potential localized flooding uh, in lower elevations. Sunshine in the far north, but rain across coastal regions. Inland regions, the snowfall will mainly just be overnight and in the early morning. It's much milder across the south, so changing over to rain. And for our region, highs of 10 and 11 degrees, very mild. We're well above seasonal by about 5 degrees. And then as you head into the weekend, we continue with unsettled weather, although the heaviest rain will ease off. And I'll leave you with a nice shot from Kaylee. This is her rainbow. She's hoping for a rainbow in May. Maple Ridge, uh, six years old, and so thank you for that. That's oh, wishful thinking, I suppose. Yeah, we'll need some sunshine <laughs> for that. All right, thanks, Christy. Thanks, Christy. An unusual weather advisory for residents of Pembroke Pines, Florida, to tell you about. Cloudy with a chance of iguanas. The National Weather Service has been advising people to be on the lookout for iguanas falling out of trees, appearing to be dead. The region is experiencing its coldest temperatures in years, and when the mercury drops to below 10 degrees Celsius, iguanas drop from the trees. Now, they are not dead. They're just stunned by the cold. Residents have been told to just leave them alone, and they will 
come to when the temperature rises. I think the same thing happens to West Coasters who go to Edmonton in the winter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all right over in the street. I would, mm -hmm. That would happen to me for sure. <laughs> Still basking in the glow of the Hall of Fame. From Maple Ridge to Florida, and as we saw with the SpongeBob SquarePants thing last night, the little <laughs> shirt, I still don't really get the shirt, but bikini bottom as well was all a glow about Larry Walker going in the Hall of Fame. Now, today the two newest members of Baseball's Hall of Fame, Derek Jeter and Larry Walker, held a press conference. And any time someone is inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, the question is, which hat will your likeness on the Hall of Fame plaque be wearing? Jeter, of course, is obvious because he only ever played for the New York Yankees, so it'll be a Yankees cap. Walker has a choice. He played for the Montreal Expos, the Colorado Rockies, and the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, he played for the Cardinals at the end of his career, so St. Louis is not a consideration. It's basically between Montreal and Colorado. So which hat will it be, Larry? Uh, being a Canadian, Montreal, I've spent a few years there and, and had a great time. Spent 10 years in Colorado. Uh, where the majority of uh, my damage was done, and, uh, and, and I think with that, the years that I spent there, uh, that it will be a Colorado Rockies hat that I'll be wearing to the Hall of Fame. It's uh, a hard decision, uh, being a Canadian, but uh, I feel with uh, all the at-bats, games played, everything that happened in Colorado, the years spent there, uh, it really seems like the right decision. Elvis Merzlikens and the Columbus Blue Jackets, who've been great since mid-December, taking on the Winnipeg Jets, who have not been so great of late. Seth Jones, he is one of the better defensemen in the NHL, scores there. That made it 1-1 in the first period. Kyle Connor will tip in a shot here by uh, Anthony Batetto. That made it 2-1 for Winnipeg, but it's now 3-3 halfway through the third period. Milos Ronic, you kind of forget about him with... All the news of the younger Canadian tennis players, but Ronich is still around. In fact, he's the only Canadian still around at the Australian Open. Taking on uh, Christian Garin in the second round. And Ronich, healthier right now, playing well. 32nd seed coming into this. This is the third set. He won the first two sets. That's vintage Ronich. And this is really vintage Ronich. Ace to end it. 19 of them, but he's got a tough one in his next match. Stefanos Tsitsipas of Greece, who's a number six seed. There really is no such thing as an overnight sensation. Somebody might seem like they came out of the blue to the general public, but quite often, these people who suddenly appear on our radars had been working on their craft for years. And only a few know how hard they've been working at it. That's very much the story of Emily Bosback, who won the Canadian Figure Skating Championships at 17 years old. But she's been working towards that goal for most of her young life. Emily Bosback, 17 years of age. It's been completely surreal. It's been so incredible. I've received so much love and support from everywhere, everybody around the world, and it's just such a great feeling. I, it's incredible. Becoming a national champion is just one of Emily Bosback's goals. This is a talented skater who's dreamed of celebrating championships for well over a decade. And winning the Canadian Senior Championship is just the beginning for the Burnaby teenager who finished 10th at last year's Nationals. 
My goals still stay the same as I really I want to go to the Olympics and I want to be the first woman in Canada to land the triple axle and the quad. So I'm going to be working on that and yeah. <laughs> Look at this combination of jumps to end up with the double toe loop right here. Karen Magnuson was the last BC skater to win the women's senior national title. That was in 1973. For a teenager like Emily, winning at 17 years old might seem like a meteoric rise until you realize she's been skating since the age of three. Her journey is similar to many Canadian kids whose parents give up so much to help their children chase a dream. And that's not lost on Emily. My parents have made so many sacrifices for me. I just, I love them so much and they've done so much for me in my career, like we sold our house a couple months ago to help pay for skating. So I'm glad that my parents, my parents went through so much and I'm glad I could repay them with this national title. Opening with her triple lutz, double toe, double toe. Now comes the follow-up performance. Next week, Emily heads off to the Four Continents Championship in Korea, where she needs to improve her technical score on the short program in order to be selected by Skate Canada for the World Championships in Montreal come March. I definitely peaked the right time at the season because you don't want to peak too early at a competition that isn't as important and then when you're at the most important one you're not at your best. So I'm really glad that this season I was able to deliver at the right time and the right moment. And today Eli Manning took his two Super Bowl titles and announced his retirement. So he is out of the NFL. At, at 500. 117 wins, 117 losses, I hear. <laughs> well, when an emergency happens, first responders need the very best equipment. Sometimes it's a matter of life and death. That's why firefighters on the North Shore were so excited to get a good look at what could be the fire truck of the future. Jordan Armstrong has the electrifying details. When you think of an electric fire truck, maybe this is what comes to mind. Well, adjust your expectations because this machine is no toy. What we have here today is the Rosenbauer all-electric fire truck, uh, which is the world's first all-electric fire engine. It's still a concept, but one several BC fire chiefs came to check out Tuesday as the Austrian-made truck heads across North America on a sales tour. We call it the firefighting appliance or vehicle of the future. He says the truck is a fire pumper, a wildland response rig, and a command center all rolled into one. A height adjustable feature makes it versatile and comfortable for its crews. That means that I have four working heights on scene so I can reach the equipment in a much more ergonomic and health improving way. I also have a normal street driving mode and a off-road mode. But what if the battery runs out during a call? Rosenbauer says the rig features a diesel generator as a backup range extender, and given most calls are medical, the eight-hour battery life should be sufficient. The fire service recognizes that innovation um, means being able to serve your community to the best of your abilities, and this is highly innovative. Now, the truck isn't cheap, almost $1.6 million Canadian. But when you consider a conventional fire truck can cost a million or more, it makes sense why municipalities like Whistler are interested. The fact that this is a four-wheel drive and the rear wheels, the front wheels turn, again, is a plus for Whistler because um, Whistler has a lot of tight areas to get in and out of. That, and no one can deny, it looks pretty cool. 
Maybe not as cool as the other electric fire truck, but it's close. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. That's pretty cool. Does look cool, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Okay, uh, last word uh, on weather before we go with some of the rain in the forecast. So a heavy rain overnight and early tomorrow morning. We are concerned about snow melt and potential localized flooding, so leave yourself extra time tomorrow morning. All right, thanks, Christy, and thank you for watching. Have a good night. Have a good night, all.